Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Contemporary Jewish Museum. I'm Lori Starr, the Executive Director. The CJM makes the diversity of Jewish life relevant for a 21st century audience. And we accomplish this through innovative exhibitions and programs that educate, challenge, and inspire, like the one you're attending this afternoon. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce someone who is a great uh, leader in world music and a dear friend to myself and the CJM and actually to all of you here. Uh, he's the trumpeter and composer Frank London. Member of the Klezmatics, Hasidic New Wave. He's performed with John Zorn, LL Cool J, Mel Torme, Lester Bowie's Brass Fantasy, Lamont Young, They Might Be Giants, David Byrne, Jane Seabury, Ben Folds Five, you're recognizing these bands? Mark Rybot, Maurice Almendioni, and Gal Costa, and is featured on over 100 CDs. His own recordings include Invocations, Cantorial Music, Frank London's Klezmer Brass All-Stars, Daishikere Kapalye, and many more. Uh, Frank's projects also include the folk opera A Night in the Old Marketplace, based on Y.L. Peretz's Benacht Eufen Altmark, Great Small Works, The Memoirs of Gluckel of Hamlin, and Min Tanaka's Romance. He was music director for David Byrne and Robert Wilson's The Knee Plays, collaborated with Palestinian violinist Simone Shaheen, taught Jewish music in Canada, Crimea, and the Catskills, and produced CDs for Gypsy legend Esma Redzepova and Algerian pianist Maurice El Medioni. He's been featured on HBO Sex and the City and other places. Um, and uh, I can't tell you how thrilled we are to have Frank with us today. So I'd just like to take this opportunity. I've been told to be brief on the backstory. I have so much music to play you. I, as usual, I made like a two and a half hour playlist for what's a half hour talk, but that happens. Um, a little bit who I am and who the Klezmatics are, and, and then talk about our process working with Peter Forgach in Letters Too Far. Um, so just really briefly, I'm sort of known in the world of Jewish music, but, and my background is, uh, is Jewish. I grew up a really strong Long Island Reformed Jew, which is meant in short, high points on Jewish identity, and practice within the way we practiced it, but no, no encounter with anything that could be called Jewish culture. My, my cultural background is probably the same as uh, someone growing up, say, in San Francisco in the 60s and 70s, just basically rock and roll. And um, I got to college and I started studying other kinds of music, but still nothing having to do with Jewish music. I met a, a great performer and teacher named Brother Ah, who had been a French horn player with, with John Coltrane, uh, named Robert Northern, and he taught classes on sound awareness, improvisation in the Afro-American, and I say Afro-American because it, this is important in my life, of a certain era. I ended up going to New England Conservatory and studying what, I have a degree in Afro-American music, which tells you both about the music, but also about the time of, uh, of history. It was mid-70s. And I studied that and what is called third stream music, which 
is basically the idea that we shouldn't divide musics by just genre or category or saying high art or popular or this, that we encounter the philosophy behind all of this is that music is something we listen to and we encounter music and we can study it and learn it. And then hopefully the goal is to assimilate different musics into your own playing, your own composing and come out as a, a way of encountering who each of us is as people and as musicians vis-a-vis -vis different musical cultures. That's kind of an oversimplification of what I was sort of trained to do. And in the midst of this beautifully insane cultural mix of playing uh, Charles Ives pieces with symphony orchestras and merengue in nightclubs with, with Dominican bands and doing street parades with Balkan brass bands and playing in jazz clubs with, with Jackie Byard and George Russell and other jazz greats, if you, if you know these people and everything. Uh, a gentleman named Hankus Netsky in, in the late 1970s uh, said, let's give a concert of Jewish music. And this one concert turned into a group called the Klezmer Conservatory Band, which along with uh, the Klezmorum from right here in the Bay Area and a few other groups sort of started this Klezmer Yiddish revival of the 1970s. And so basically that was one part of my music career. I was with the Klezmer Conservatory Band and then eight years later we founded the Klezmatics. The Klezmatics have been together since 1986 and um, we're a collective group with relatively little personnel change over the year and they're very slow. And we've stayed together for nearly 30 years in part because of our commitment to traditional Jewish culture and music, but in part because of our absolute love of stretching out and collaborating with other artists, encountering people of different cultures and philosophies. And this is kind of what keeps us going. Um, that's about enough, you know, talky, talky, talky uh, for part one. I, I, I want to get to the meat of it and not take it all up. I just want to say that certain things that I learned studying third stream music, Afro-American music, um, improvisation, listening, certain things have just been a through line in everything I've done in, over the last 35 years. And these are thinking about aesthetics thinking about process, thinking about collaborations, thinking about how musics and cultures interact and what is created, thinking about also how to learn musics, how to listen, and, and, and also along the way how to create projects, working with people, and finally how to teach, which is always a hard one, you know, when you're a perennial student is learning how to teach, but that's been part of it. All right, so that's kind of a background on who I am in a general sense. Uh, you, how many people don't know what klezmer music is? I know, this, okay, everyone, good. So then we can be really short. I wanna just give, start the, the meat of this discussion just by putting some klezmer in our ears. Since, feel free to ask questions during this part, you know, but if you don't, I'll just assume you get the idea, and I, but I won't transform this into a lecture on klezmer music, if you know what I'm saying. 
So let's just get this sound in our, in our ears. somewhat scales that are not quite modes, actually, that are not quite our Western modes, but not entirely unrelated. A good dance beat. This happens to be Naftuli Braunwine, one of the two great clarinetists who was born in Europe and came to America, the other being Dave Tarras, who kind of defined this klezmer, which is just in a way of a definition, Jewish, East European, Jewish, Yiddish-speaking instrumental music. That's the technical definition of klezmer. So you've heard stuff like this. Um, here's a, a, this is a small group. This is a trio. Let's hear a big band just to get some sounds in your ears. This is Abe Schwartz's orchestra. And when we're teaching klezmer or learning klezmer, we often talk not only about the rhythms and the notes, but the expression, the way the instruments, especially in this case, the clarinet, we'll hear violin in a moment, the way it's trying to sound like a Jewish singer. And not just any Jewish singer, but an East European, Yiddish-speaking, Ashkenazic Jewish singer. I have a, an example here of, it's not even what you would call singing, it's more praying, davening. Uh, we have the distinction in synagogues between the chazan, the cantor, the official singer, and the baltafila, the person who leads the praying. And this is actually a great rabbi, Tversky, who, I'm, you know, if I start talking about him, we'll get totally off topic. But what I love about this recording of Rabbi Tversky, he's not a singer, but listen to the, the melody that is in his prayer. So we're going to get back to this, and in a sense, I'm going to jump. I'll, I'll continue the narrative thread, but I'm going to jump forward to the exhibition. Because for me, what you hear, what we hear when we listen to this kind of voice, like this, it, it, it's so evocative, right? It puts you in a place, I mean, even if some of you have never heard anything like this in your life, which I'm sure we all have, but even if you've never heard this, I think all of a sudden you associate things with it. It is so powerful not only 
for what it is, which is prayer, but for its power to put us in a time and a place and a space. And I think that as when, when we get into the talk of how klezmatics worked on the music for Letters to Afar, I think you have to keep in your mind the power of this music to evoke things. And, and uh, in one of my favorite words in talking about that, it is not only what it is, but it's a signifier. It's a, it, it, like, you know, we listen, let me see if I can do it. I mean, two seconds of it and you get it. It signifies an entire culture. And for many of us, not only that, it signifies it, it has a certain, there's a certain nostalgia. Do, you, do any of you feel nostalgic hearing this? Do any of you feel nostalgic even though you never heard this when you were growing up? Because I do. I feel nostalgic for something that I never experienced. I mean, this is, in the same way though, I mean, I'm not saying, with anything I say, it's not that it's unique to this Yiddish Jewish music because if I played some recordings as I, I'm uh, you know, enamored and obsessed with 1920s and 30s Cuban music, and you know, and, and again, we would have a different kind of nostalgia. The weather's a lot better in Havana than it was in Minsk. And, and the dancing is certainly different. But we also have a nostalgia for something that, at least growing up in New York, I never grew up there either. But it's the particularity. So I'm not saying it's, it's not unique, but it's in, 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 its, in this universal thing, but the particularity is what we're going for. So this music, contains such particularity and such, and yet a universality. And it's the power of this that got us in trouble when we were scoring Letters to Afar. And I didn't put this on my original playlist, so I'm sorry I didn't vet it first, but let me see if this works, and then I'll tell you what it, what it is. Zoom. Okay. I'm sorry, this, this, is, this is a side trip, but it's, uh, since, I, I felt emotional listening to that singing voice. This is Minna Byrne. She is one of the last of the great legendary Yiddish actresses. So she's not singing. This is not religious text. This is just a recording I made of her reading um, by Nachtoff and Alton Mark, uh, the parrot's play that I adapted. And listen to her. Uh, I don't know if any of us in the room are old enough to have, when we went to school, to have like courses where you learned how to read poetry. Did they still do that? I don't think they do that anymore. But um, she told us, us growing up Jewish in Belarus that she actually won prizes in declaiming poetry. But listen again to the Jewishness of her reading, of her just, this is not even singing. She would not say this is singing, and it's not. But, das deutsche schrockene Herz von Ergetz Head, von Steppenschwarz, von nachtbegossene Felder und Wälder kommen. You know, it's, 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 you, you understand, it's all embodied in there. Does any of you understand a word she said? A little bit? So yeah, it's, it's beautiful poetry. That's, that, but even for those of us, well, I do now, but for those of us for whom we don't, understand it, you still understand it on this ontological way. It, again, it, it's a signifier, it contains all this culture. 
Okay, so let me get back to our originally scheduled program here. Um, okay, let me just give you one more second of, of the old stuff and then we'll move to the next part. So we, we heard praying, we heard speaking, we heard klezmer music, and just, uh, okay, two more little examples. This is what they call a nigun, plural nigunim, literally means uh, a mystical melody, a holy song. Um, this More contemporary, obviously. Thanks for the rhythm machine. But just pay, pay, ignore the music and pay attention to the singing. No words, ay, ay, ay. I, I, I could have found a more heart-wrenching nigga, but... Okay, so this is... And the last thing I want to put in the ether of the old stuff is chazonas, or as they call it now, chazanut, cantorial music. Another art, and again, another thing that I'm doing is I'm also getting us back to this time period, other than this uh, Hasidic piece I just played. Um, everything we're hearing is pointing us towards the, definitely before World War II, obviously, but a lot from the 30s, the interwar period, the klezmer stuff that I played you, and this recording, these are all of that interwar period. So we're kind of going back in time. This is Pierre Pinchik, the great Chazen, singing Rosa de Chavez, which is a beautiful, mystical thing. Let me get to him, oh God. You hear the same ornamenting that you heard the guy praying, Rabbi Tversky, is embodied in the singing, and then it gets embodied in the klezmer music. the whole thing It'll take a lot of time here so this cantorial music these are all connected genres the 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 word I didn't use yet nusach which is the melodies that are used to chant prayers and of course for those of us who are into mysticism and numerology and these different systems just like Indian raga where different modes are associated with different prayers, different times of day, different times of the yearly cycle. We have the same thing where different modes are used for different prayers, even the same prayer said at different times of day or different times of year has different melodies. This has largely been uh, neglected for other attitudes towards Jewish prayer music in our, in our 
kind of 21st century American world. Now it's more about just um, communal singing, which has a, another great power and spirituality to it. But this minutia of the proper modes to be using the nusach and, and also using this very highly dramatic, uh, nostalgic way of singing is kind of not in favor anymore. 86. And our philosophy, very simply, first we just started copying old recordings, which is what you do if you want to sound authentic, but you're not of the group that did it. You f find your source. Our source was old recordings, like the ones we played for you. Listen, copy, listen, copy, listen, copy. This is the uh, kind of the ADD speed speech of this, so that we can get to the stuff. So there we are, and we had our first gig uh, in Europe at a festival, and we're playing our old copies of old songs. And the only thing that we did, and this came out of, as I was saying, my earlier just growth and training, our only choice, oh, and this also applies to the exhibition, was that we were going to make certain aesthetic and political choices about the repertoire we played. And we were going to try as best as possible to make sure that the songs we sang reflected our worldview and that the, basically the music that we played, the songs that we, the instrumental music, that it was stuff that we related to. Now you might ask, well, what's the big deal of saying you're gonna sing songs that you care about? Isn't that what everyone does? Well, you have to understand, and this connects exactly to the exhibition, is that we were not composing music. We were not writing Yiddish songs. We were not writing klezmer music. We were not doing anything original. We were listening, doing archival research, and finding songs. So our repertoire, what defined each of the bands I was in, first the Klezmer Conservatory Band, and then the Klezmatics when we formed it, was the songs that we chose from the repertoire of songs that existed. And in a sense, and let me find this definition I hear, um, this can be seen very much in relation to the early 20th century art idea of found art and found objects. Um, uh, found objects, I'm reading now, uh, originates from the French objet trouvé, okay? Describing art created from undisguised but often modified objects or products. So basically, we would look and listen to songs, and we're lucky because the members of our band are all you know, obsessive researchers. I guess Lawrence Glamberg, uh, our singer and accordionist, more than anyone, because his day job, so to speak, he is the sound archivist at the YIVO, at the Institute of Yiddish Studies. So he's kind of the person who's got more access to the repertoire than anyone. So we said, how do we take these found objects, these songs, of which there's an infinite amount, and kind of create an identity for ourselves as a band using other people's material. And we gravitated, and, and that was the question, and then we answered it in many ways. And we gravitated to social justice songs, um, like Olive Breeder, which we still perform to this day. And, and 
that was our original repertoire. We went to Europe. We also liked songs about partying, and we eschewed songs about nostalgia. We said, first of all, I mean, between you and, you and me, we all know how nostalgic the music is already. You kind of don't have to add, uh, as, Yoki, as uh, Yoshiko Chuma, this choreographer, says, you don't have to put the sugar on the chocolate cake. We get the idea. It's sweet already, you know? So, um, so songs like, one of the most famous songs in uh, anyone of a certain either age or background will know what I'm talking about, we would give concerts and they would say, play Romania, Romania. You know, which is a song, even in its day when it was written, it was already nostalgic. Um, no, 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 literally, clearly, this was an era because Moisha, uh, uh, Aaron Lebedev, thank you, sorry, um, was not living in Romania. He was Romanian. He, it was a song about almost a, a Romania of the mind, to paraphrase, the, you know, uh, Ginsburg. Uh, no, who wrote a Coney Island of the mind? Ferland Getty. See, we're in, the, we're in the heartland here. We're like two miles from city lights or less, you know, the heartland. That's my roots. You know, so it was a Romania of the mind. Um, and they sang about, you know, they make, it, it's just like, it's so of its era. They sing about, oh, anyone who dances with their own wife is a fool. And, oh, Romania, where we ate these, you know, corned beef pastrami sausages. I mean, you know, it's great, it's great, I'm not putting it down, but it, did, it didn't personally relate to our lives. So we said, not those, and, and, and we created our identity by our choice of found objects. And part of it was we also, as a band, collectively from the beginning, kind of, we looked at what the other five or six klezmer bands that existed at that time were doing, we said, well, we won't do those songs, because they're doing them. So we'll define our identity by what we choose. Later on, we started composing, which is how we ended up you know, in this situation. But we started that way. And the reason this connects, and I realize that time will fly, so I'm just gonna start crossing the third wall and going back and forth between the history and the show. Because what Peter Forgotch is doing is also working with found objects. And this is uh, this similarity that he and we as a band had ideologically. We had other problematic aesthetic problems, but we both understand that we're working. He's, he was given in this piece this footage. Do you, do you all know the stories? Yes, these are essentially, not entirely, home movies by American Jewish Polish emigres who in the interwar period went back to Poland to see their families and shoot home movies. There's a couple of professional movies mixed in. Peter, what he does, he works with archival footage. Do you know about found footage? Uh, it's, uh, the, okay, um, found footage is used actually in two kind of different senses. One, the one that we're not talking about is films that are supposed to be made to look as if they were real and someone found them. That's the, the Blair Witch Project, essentially. It's filmed to look as if this was really someone making you know, a movie and they found it. The found footage that we're talking about is an entire movement. It's got a great sort of political, social underpinning. Um, it, the idea is that 
taking things that have already been filmed and through your presentation of them, whether they're altered or not, making new work out of it. So again, the parallel, Peter Forgach works with footage that he did not create. We work with music, with a tradition that we did not create. We work with songs and texts that we did not create. Of course, we also create our own now. But, and we both have developed a language of doing this. And uh, the, uh, there are found, one aspect of found footage that's not the kind that we're dealing with here. There's a found footage festival where people go through uh, thrift stores and garbage cans and old age homes and different things and get people's home movies and different things and just project them. And it's, you can imagine, it's powerful. I mean, it kind of, it's got that same power uh, if any of you, let's say, go on social media and, and see people who post old photos of them. And of course, if you know the people involved, it's hilariously funny. But even if you don't, if you know that era, again, it's the same thing of things having a power just by what they are and really evoking feelings in us. Okay, so the klezmatics started by doing sort of the found object version of klezmer music and Yiddish. And then we were in Germany and a producer essentially said to us, it was brilliant, he said, why don't you guys put some of who you are as musicians into this? And coincidentally, he also had a record label and a booking agency. And he said, and if you do, I'll record you and tour it. So <laughs> it was kind of hard to say no. So, and then I could say that in one way or another, this is back in 1988, the last 30 years or 26 years have been us playing out different examples of us encountering who we are as musicians with this tradition, and we're constantly doing that. Let me just give you just some random samples just so you get a little idea of the variety of klezmatic stuff, and then we'll dive into specifically what we did for this project. Um, and just because I get bored with things really fast. I'm gonna play you a lot of stuff from what will be our new upcoming CD because that's, uh, okay. Um, uh, no, but here's an old one. This is called Hevel is Havalim. It's from uh, Rise Up. And it, and it does show a certain way that we work. The text, I originally found a few couplets in Ruth Rubin's book, and it's just a rhyming children's song, but in a very Jewish way. It starts uh, with that famous line, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, hevel is avalim. In And then, and I found just a couple of lines of it in Ruth Rubin. Lauren found a book of Yiddish folk song texts that had about three pages of rhyming verse in this, very nonsensical childlike pattern that's where everything rhymes, but uh, it doesn't really go anywhere. Two is not three, and three is not free, and if I was free, I'd have a beer, but I'd have no beer because it's fear. I mean, it's just, it's that kind of rhyme. Um, so the music was inspired by the first two measures of a manuscript that Hannah Mlatek, who was a great researcher who passed away a year ago at the Evo gave us. So found text, a scrap of music developed with original composition into this. 
starts with us evoking an older sound. And in fact, when you see the exhibition, you'll hear a lot of this kind of sound from the band. of rhythm, which I said I would. We start out with what's called a chusadol, a walking rhythm. Like the word means a little Hasidic walking rhythm. And then we totally, when the rhythm section came in, brought in Middle Eastern Arabic uh, debka rhythms. So we go from inside and outside kind of interchangeably. So, so that's a, that's a good one that kind of shows one of the many ways that the klezmatics are constantly negotiating between old sounds, new sounds. The instrument that very important uh, in this piece and in the exhibition is the hammered dulcimer, which was a, a instrument favored by itinerant klezmer, more of the rural shtetl Jews, not so much in the cities and also the violin, which is so important. And our violinist who was playing is right here, Lisa Gutkin. And uh, I'll bring her up. God, I do have to cut to the, Ellie was right, I have to cut to the chase to get to the piece. Let me try to play one more instead of the 17 klezmatics cuts I had. Um, okay, here's, here's a new one. It's not finished yet, but I, I thought I'd play it. Actually, um, this is a, uh, one of the many ways we work now, which is, again, still, you know, still up to our old tricks. The melody is an old melody that we found from Dave Tarras, so it's of the era of those very first pieces that I played you. Um, but I heard it, and I said, oh, this could be a song, and I had an idea for a song, and uh, I wanted it to be about, um, do, you, do you all know what an apicoirus is? An apicoirus? Oh my gosh, you, how, would you, how would you define that? Were you called Napikoris by your parents when you were a kid? Like, you Apikoris. A non-believer, a heretic. But it, was, it always had a little, it, technically it means someone, yeah, a non-believer. But it's not only a non-believer in God, because that would be an atheist. It's not a non-believer in God. It's a non-believer in authority, more or less. It's, you know, you don't re re respect the rabbinic authority. You're not following the tradition. You're not staying in line. You're an apicoirist. Of course, an apicoirist also was, you had to be educated in 
the thing that you were rejecting. Otherwise, it really didn't count. It didn't count if you didn't know you weren't supposed to do it. So that, uh, so I love the idea. And I, again, I'm old enough that this was still an insult when I was little. You apicurus. You're not following authority. You're not paying attention. So. But I couldn't get much further than that. And, uh, but Yuri Vednyapin, one of the great Yiddish writers, could, so he wrote this entire silly song. And it's funny, just like the Hevel is a volume, it's got a lot of silly, meaningless rhymes, and yet it's really a lot of fun uh, about these happy, lustige, lustige. Any of you speak German, lustig? What a great word, uh, you know, like, ha, ha, I'm, you know. Uh, the lustige apikursim, the happy, non-believing heretics and they dance in a circle and sometimes they dance naked and they have a good time and they don't need rabbis or popes but so here's this is going to be one of the songs we're actually uh in in discussion right now maybe just call the album apicorsium heretics you know it's so funny it's so inside and so outside at the same time so here it is the uh, da, da, da. Now this rhythm, I told you I would do it. This rhythm is a, a bulgar. This is the quintessential klezmer rhythm. This is the rhythm. It's got that boom, boom, This is the dance in a circle. This is the. This is it. This is ninety percent of klezmer dance music is bulgar. So that's an overstatement, but we'll go with it for the moment. It's happy, right? It's fun. It makes you want to dance. It's got a good rhythm. point this out because yeah that's what the klezmatics do and we do it really well we play good happy music with melodies and we can get you all singing together and we'll in a minute you'll all be dancing going and very active great right and and then and then again even though we're anti-nostalgic the music brings you back to another place we play on that power everything there it's all good except when we had to do the music for um, Peter Forgatch's Letters to Afar. And uh, so, and it's uh, doubly ironic because the entire thing was actually our idea in the first place. Maybe if we have a moment, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the backstory on that, but there's so much to, to do. Um, okay, yeah, I'll make it really short. Basically, Klezen, we had the idea 
let's do music with silent movies. Everyone loves music for silent movies. I see a few museum, uh, a few museum presenters in the audience, friends, and as you know, if you're a group that's been around for 30 years, the one thing you hate people saying is, well, we had you already. We know what you're doing. You were just here. So it's kind of like if we want to work, if we kind of have to reinvent ourselves over and over and over and make new projects and new contexts so we can go, no, you haven't seen our music of with the silent film. And then, they, oh, okay, good. Um, so that was our idea. And then the question of what silent film to use. And Lauren, who works at the Evo, as I mentioned, said, well, there's these films, the ones that we talked about, in the archives of the Evo. What you should know is they, they weren't a collection, so to speak. I'm not exactly sure I could find out, we could find out on the website, who actually put it together, but they made an exhibition well before our piece where they, someone collected these different films from different sources and said, yes, there's a common thread. A curator put them together. And if you look on the EVO website, if you look for it, you can find these films that you'll be seeing here. And it might be fun after the exhibition, you go home, you can see them in their raw form. They had been presented. They're amazing artifacts. They do everything that we were talking about with that early music. They immediately put you in a place they signify so much, and as was one of the most important things that keeps on coming up again, this is not a Holocaust piece at all, but you can't, I think, or I couldn't, I couldn't, I won't tell you what you can or can't do. I couldn't look at this without realizing that everything that we see is gone. They didn't know that it was gone. No one knew that when they filmed it, but 10 years later, it's gone. But, but that's not what this piece is about. But that idea, so my point, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, is that everything that we bring to this exhibition is so laden with power, with nostalgia, with memory, the film images themselves, the original music, if we had used the original music, and then the history, the burden of history, and what happened could be so weighty. And that's not what anyone was trying to do. Peter Forgotch works with found footage, and he transforms it, and he walks a line um, that's a very interesting one, and I've learned more about him, we've learned more about him through this process, between documentary, which is more what the original exhibition was when they just showed these film clips and gave descriptions at where they came from, who the people were. And let's say pure art, you know, where you would go and just have a totally aesthetic experience and not really recognize everything and everything would be abstract and not, you know, have any references. He, w to back up a second, I think many of us work in this spectrum and the interesting thing is where we are in this spectrum. And Peter picked a very interesting point, and see if you feel this, either if you saw it or when you go back up. He picked a very interesting point kind of in the middle of this, where he presents the films, and he has a narrator telling you the stories, and the music is um, very much just ambient and in the background. 
and he's telling you the story. That's very documentary. And then all of a sudden, the narration goes away, the speed of the film starts reversing and going very slowly, and the music kind of takes over, and all of a sudden you're in kind of a meditative state, more the art world. So he really negotiates this, this path very, in a very interesting way. He came to us, we came to him. We said, we want to do a, a music, that's, I'm trying to keep my narrative going. So Lawrence says, let's use these films and make something out of them. That'll be our unique klezmatics silent movie with, with live music. Turned out to be recorded music. So then we said, great idea, and we started looking around and talking to people, Barbara Kirsch and Blatt Gimblet of the Poland Museum. Who are the great artists who work in this way? And Peter's name was like right on the top three in everyone's list, and he had a deep history and love of Jewish culture. He's made a number of films in this way. Boom, we made the shidduch, and this museum, I'm cutting really fast here. And uh, the museum in Poland was opening this is this new Jewish museum, the Museum of the History of Jews in Poland. And, but they were having problems with their opening date and they needed an exhibition to kind of sort of fill the space for about six months while they could get ready for their permanent exhibition. So we had to get this show together. So that's the genesis of making it. Good, I'm gonna take a break for a second. So there we are, we're meeting Peter. Actually, we met for the first months only over Skype and it was hysterical. And we're talking about what we want to make and we're trading ideas and we send him klezmatics music and it's all this happy stuff and it, not all happy, you know, we play sad music, but it's still got melodies and rhythms and solos and energies. And basically what he wants is more, now this is not from his film, this is from one of the most famous museum films of all time, Koyana Squatsi, you know, Scotsy. Scotsy, Koyana Scotsy, Philip Glass's music. Now you're not going to be dancing to this. <laughs> and you're not going to be singing along, except there's a, except if you want to go. And basically, what he wants is very ambient, things that don't have a narrative. By the way, the klezmatics are kind of like the masters of taking a three and a half or four minute song, making like 15 worlds within it will go left, right, change, things happen at a breakneck speed. No. We want nothing to happen for a long time. So no melodies, no real motion, and he wants things to be 9, 10, 12, 15 minutes long. Um, do you understand what you'll see when you go upstairs? Are a number of films that he has created using the originals, each one is looping, but they're looping on different times because they're of different lengths. So in terms of the gestalt of the exhibit, you'll never be, it'll never be the same at any two moments, you know? 
because there's always something different. Each one has a different length and each one has different music as well as sound effects and narration. And as you go from each station to each station, I truly hope that you take the time, don't just glance, but put yourself in the space and start encountering it and listen and watch. And partially he needed music like this that just keeps you in one place and presents a palette, but not the foreground, it's the background. Klezmatics are not a background kind of a group. That's kind of not who we are. So, you know, we, okay, so you get the idea of Philip Glass. Um, we have a, we're a collective group. We've been collectivizing for 30 years. We have our processes. Basically with each project that comes in, it's a mixture of who's interested in it and who has the time to work on it at that moment. So in this case, uh, half the band was too busy, so the composers were myself, our reed player Matt Dario and Lisa Gutkin. We contributed music and we talked a lot about what he wanted and we said, you know, we tried talking him out of it and arguing and um, all, you know, things that didn't work at all until we'd finally started, got around to saying, what can we do? And this is maybe, this is the point that I was supposed to start the talk at. What can we do to take what we have, who we are, because we're always about that, and not only who we are, but this tradition that we're so familiar with, create something that you can work with. And he kept on sending us, you know, song, uh, music after music of his composers. And we're like, we know what you wanted, and we understand that. And it's just not necessarily who we are, but we love a good challenge. And so what we ended up is generating hours of music. And a lot of it was about, we recorded it in such a way, now I'm getting into deep process. I hope this stuff doesn't bore you. I, I'm fascinated. We wrote these compositions that were malleable and we recorded them all together, but in separate rooms with doors closed so that when we were mixing it, a lot of what I'm gonna play you came out of the mix. We could get rid of stuff. So there might have been a drummer playing a dance rhythm and we just got rid of it. Or there might have been a melody and we got rid of it or we changed it. And we were able to have things that have, I think ultimately our goal was to play with having the ethos of the world that those films were originally shot in without being too literal, without being nostalgic and telling you what to think and feel because the idea is for you to have your experience with it and not to be, you know, Hollywood tells us what to feel with the music. It's all very, you know, very well constructed. We're trying to find the opposite. And therefore we had to get away from a lot of our old tricks. So, um, see, got it. that's two o'clock already. Mm. Okay, I'll just play you some stuff and maybe Lisa will come up and, and rather than me representing her stuff. I have it here, but if you wanna talk about it. So let me just play you a couple of things since you heard Klezmatics, you heard old Klezmer and you understand the idea. I like this.
it's a lot like our other songs except nothing's happening. Do any of you remember the Bugs Bunny cartoon where um, Elmer Fudd is in a room and it's like, like ether and he's like It's like we, we tried to put our klezmatics, klezmer music through the E. And it's hard for me even sitting here to trust the music. I, I, I'm a little nervous person and I want to talk. I'm like, they're going to get bored just listening to this. But, and, and we would never do this in a concert, but I'm going to try to. But that's what the exhibition is for. You sink into a different time world, both in terms of your sense of time minute to minute, but also what year we're in. Are we pre modern, post modern? Where are we? The symbol background is composed using a lot of what Steve Reich does. If um, I was speaking, where are you? Um, her husband conducts Steve Reich music. You wouldn't notice it, but there's bars of 384858. It sounds normal, but it's stretched out. And Lisa, the melody she's playing, I told her to essentially, I don't even know if you were listening to the symbol or just ignoring it and just to play in her own time. So just like the music never really syncs with the films, it's not Hollywood, her melody floats in one world, the dulcimer floats in one world, and we enter this different time space. That's three minutes, the piece is nine minutes long. And just so you know what I'm saying, you know what it sounds like eight minutes into it? You know, that's, uh, but that was the idea, and it's wonderful. You know, I, I kind of sometimes, I wish I had the courage to go out on stage and just play something like that, you know? It's a, all the, the fun action, it's a crutch. You know, you get people singing and dancing, and you know they're enjoying themselves. Here's another one. Uh, I want to play ones that really show different examples. One of the things we did, that one is pretty pure. That's pure in terms of uh, she, Lisa played the melody twice without really listening. That was it. You didn't listen to yourself doing the first one. And I said, trust it, it's going to work. So this one is pretty much just the recording. Now I'm going to show you what we did because we were trying to find what Peter wanted, sending him stuff after stuff. I went to a friend's house who's very into new music and electronic music. I don't know if any of you work with this stuff. And there's these amazing computer programs. Max uh, is a great program of dissecting every sound through granular synthesis. 
so cold because you actually break up the sound waves into little grains and reconstruct them. And so this is, I think it's interesting. Um, uh, part one max, that's what I'm looking for. Cluster part one max. Sorry, cluster part one max, here we go. This is what happens when you take that similar approach and start messing with it with electronics. Now I'm playing it very loud, but up in the space, it all becomes very ambient. And yet the instruments you recognize, so they again carry that, they evoke another era even when they're so modern like this. There is a lot of klezmer music that uses tempo, but there's a type of genre called a doina, which is an out of tempo, no, an arrhythmic piece, and we thought that would be very useful for this. So I composed sort of a, a doina without a melody and then stretched it out in the most lengthy way. And... So for those of you who know the klezmatics, I can't think of anything more antithetical to the way we play. But yet it's us, in the same way that playing Woody Guthrie's American songs is us. And it's informed the little expressions, the way that Matt bends the notes. It's coming from klezmer. And the mode, which doesn't unfold for about three minutes, is one of those klezmer East European Jewish modes. But I don't think it has anywhere near that nostalgic impact that, that playing for you that, that religious singer did. You wouldn't say, oh, this reminds me of my grandparents or my great-grandparents in the same way. Or maybe you would. And Lisa, why don't you come up? I'll show you what I downloaded of your stuff and uh, if you want to talk about But let me just play you one more piece of uh, some of the stuff. Oh, here she is. I'll play you my stuff next. So without any further, I have all these De news and then there's the Fardiers and, and the, and the Parner piano at this. You want to play it first or talk? Um, yeah. This is Lisa Gutkin. <laughs>
Talk. So, um, so the, the first piece I'll play for you is called, um, it was called the Parnu Piano because I wrote it in Estonia on a piano in, in, in a town called Parnu. Um, and it kind of is like a slow horror rhythm. We, um, on the new album, if it makes it onto the album, um, it's going to be a song that Lauren found poetry to. Um, so you'll hear it's rhythmically fairly simple. And uh, thank you. The first thing I tried to do, you know, recording this for Peter was to um, make it a, a, I was just trying to make it a little less traditional here and there, and I was sort of strumming on the fiddle in the background, trying to pull on the rhythm, but it still has a fairly traditional sound to it. Before she goes away from this one, I'm not sure, we're not sure ultimately which of the thousands of hours of music made it into the show. But since nothing ever goes to waste in our house, let me play you just a second of, can I play them? Of the version of this melody that she wrote with words for the new record. It's not finished, it's not mixed, but as, since we're talking about it. Now, for my money, this would have been perfect in the show, but Peter found that Lauren's singing called too much attention to itself. There were so many things that are so obvious. For, for us, we'd all say, oh yeah, that'll be great, but know his voice and then the narrative of the words well, and the fact that people would get into the text, it didn't work for what he wanted, but we get a great song out of it. Back to the other hand. And, and, and actually, this arrangement is absolutely influenced by <laughs> what we were doing for the film project because I don't think we would have come up with this ethereal kind of um, arrangement had we not just put this piece into this project. Okay, so then I kind of deconstructed the melody. And, and, and because the piece was called Parnu, I call this De Parnu. Yeah, six of them. Um, let's do um, piano melody, let's do that first. Mm -hmm. Can you hear the original melody? Da, 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 da. I think we learned a 
quick Q and A, or otherwise we'll be. Well, oh, you see? Oh, oh, I'm gonna fade. And of course, I have five more to go. We don't have. Do we have time for like three questions? No, let's. We'll we'll do. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Oh, I'll do that. Oh, but I can. Yeah. Join you outside and ask Perfect. So, but let's do one one while we're here. I will do what gravity says exactly. Thank you so much. I know the time flies. Um,